HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. My name is Hannah Forden. I'm the membership coordinator at Heritage Radio Network, but even before I joined the team, I loved listening to HRN during my subway commute. It made the time go quickly and left me feeling inspired for the day ahead. HRN listeners tune in from all over the world, but there are a few traits that we all have in common, no matter where we listen from. A curious palate, the fierceness to make a difference, and a hunger for lifelong learning about the culinary world. As you know, Heritage Radio Network is a listener-supported nonprofit. To deliver the most ambitious, entertaining, and of-the-moment stories in 2018, we need your help. We need to raise $150,000 by December 31st to accomplish these goals and to keep your favorite shows on the air. Together, we can make this HRN's most exciting, impactful, and delicious year yet. Become a member by donating today. Join us at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate, and you'll immediately start enjoying benefits such as VIP invitations to HRN events, where you will mix and mingle with your favorite hosts. Memberships also make a perfect holiday gift for all the foodies in your life. This year, why not give the gift of food radio? You'll hear your generosity in action for the year to come. Help keep our lights on and our mics hot by pledging your support today at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for listening. Yeah, that's right. It's Monday. Woohoo! So today in New York City, we had a little, uh, our own special little um, reminder of the sea of ordure that endures around the world. And I can only say thank you to our law enforcement agencies for keeping this city safe and keeping, you know, my fellow New Yorkers and my beautiful city intact. Uh, the perpetuator has been apprehended. And fortunately, no one was killed, including the unfortunate man who strapped explosives to his body uh, because he felt the need to make an expression of rage against what I considered the most polyglottal, polycultural, and essentially heavenly place on earth. And I mean New York City, because there is no other city in the world like New York City for its diversity, its welcoming 
and its sustaining of so many cultures all packed into so little space. So thanks to the boys in blue, whichever agencies you are, uh, for keeping us all on the subway, man. I rode the subway here. No problem. Like this thing happened at 730 or something like that (laughs) by 11 o'clock. You would never have known. Anyway. Enough of that. We have a wonderful program ahead of us. Um, we're going to take a little a dive back into the history of our nation. Um, we're talking with Carson Vaughn, who is a freelance journalist based in Omaha, Nebraska. He writes frequently about the Great Plains, from the environment to the arts and everything in between. His work has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Guardian, The Atlantic, Smithsonian, and more. And he's currently working on a book about the small town of Royal, Nebraska. His recent article, the subject of our discussion today, is Uprooting FDR's Great Wall of Trees, which appeared in the November 1st issue of Food and Environment Reporting Network, or FERN, F-E-R-N, in partnership this time with the Weather Channel, which is an interesting partnership. Um, Carson, thanks so much for uh, joining us today. Um, I'm excited to have you on the show. Like, you're, you and, are you friends with Ted Genoways, by the way? That's funny. I was going to bring him up later. Yeah, Ted and I are good friends, actually. Yeah, because, of course, he's been on my show a million times, and um, and right. most recently for this Blessed Earth, which has been getting all kinds of well-deserved accolades. I really rejoice Absolutely. in Ted's success. I think he's a fantastic writer, and I have yep. learned, personally learned so, so much from him, um, from reading his work, especially The Chain, which was my favorite. But I loved this Blessed Earth, and I thought it really, um, you know, it was such a balanced and realistic view of farming, which is something that so few people really seem to be able to grasp in a way, yeah. you know, the yeah. where there's such a disconnect for us. And, um, and farming is not just, you know, it's not, it's so complex. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're so, we're lucky to have Ted here. He's such a complex, nuanced writer. And, yes. you know, we hear about brain drain a lot. So it's great to have someone <laughs> smart and, you know. And who's really uh, committed to your state. Because he's a many yeah, time, I, I think, a multi generational Nebraskan. Yeah, um, that's right. And that's part of the appeal for him. So um, before we go on and t- talk about your article, what what are you writing about the town of Royal? Is it sort of a similar sort of um, uh, exploration yes of and small no. town America? Probably more on the no. And I've actually, for upwards of eight years now, what started as my undergraduate thesis mm-hmm. way back in the day. Uh, Royal is a town of about 65 people in Antelope County, which strangely wow. is the same county that I sort of focused on for this tree story. Uh-huh. But Royal had a zoo in a town of 65 people that grew, uh, you know, sort of wildly out of control to the point where in 2005, uh, four chimpanzees escaped their cage and were <laughs> ultimately shot and killed in oh, that town. No. And so the book is sort of a deep dive on not just this zoo, but sort of how small towns cope with having a large attraction like a zoo and how they deal with that zoo going away. Oh, how interesting. I can't wait to read it. Well, you'll come back for that, I hope. Yeah, please do. Yeah, really, absolutely. And it reminds me, my cousin, who's a wonderful photographer, and I don't recall the state, it might be South Dakota, but he just did a photo essay on something called Bedrock City, which was a 1972 Flintstones theme park. That wow. still is still sort of barely ticking along. I know we're totally digressing here, but um, <laughs> he just gave me, my brother and myself, some beautiful prints. And um, it's just the weirdest, and it's almost deserted, and yet somehow, you know, two, three, four people a day or every other day show up, and it still limps along. Yeah. You know, 
the, you know, it sort of reminds me of the zoo in a way. That's why I brought it up. But anyway. Yeah, it was very much a similar situation to that. You know, by the end, they're running off volunteers and everybody is tired yeah. and a little strung out and it just kind of <laughs> gets out of hand. <laughs> anyway, we look forward to that. So you have written a story and I will just remind listeners of what it is. It's called Uprooting FDR's Great Wall of Trees. Um, and so just to start back to where the Great Wall of Trees became necessary, can you remind listeners, there may be some people who are not that familiar with the Dust Bowl phenomenon in this country. So let's start with a little bit of a history of the Dust Bowl and then, uh, you know, sort of why um, FDR got so serious about planting uh, what are called shelter belts. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the Dust Bowl or what we call the Dirty Thirties around here, I think it's probably important to start back at the Homestead Act when we started luring so many settlers out Mm. into the Great Plains. Um, And that was in 62. And then especially after the Civil War, all these soldiers ended up looking for another life out west also. So you get this settlement out here in the Great Plains, and what we did at that time was start tearing up all this native grassland that had been previously, you know, mostly untouched. And then so decades on decades, and then by the time you get up to World War One, and we're just harvesting as much wheat and corn and everything we can for the war effort, we've just been tearing up millions of acres of topsoil. And yeah. then the Dirty Thirties hit, 1930, 31, a drought starts uh, you know, kind of settle into the plains, and that lasts for nearly a decade. Wow. And when you've torn up all that topsoil and you're hitting a drought, you know, that soil's got to go somewhere, and right. the wind is blowing it east, and you're losing literally millions of tons of topsoil that's just blowing away in front of your eyes. Wow. And so then, you know, I guess to keep going here, the reason FDR implemented what ultimately became called the Prairie States Forestry Project was that you know, he was looking around, he was touring as governor and then president of the Great Plains states, and he's thinking, like, what do we do to curb the effects of all this topsoil blowing around? And story has it that when he, when FDR was still governor of New York, he was on the campaign trail for presidency, and when he hit Montana, his train was delayed by a wind-eroded hillside in Butte, Montana. Mm-hmm. And he started looking around and thinking, you know, what if there was a huge wall of trees here to prevent this wind and this dust from blowing everywhere. Uh, and two years later, you know, he signed into an executive order saying, let's make this a real deal. And his vision was to have this great wall of trees spanning from the Canadian border all the way down to the Texas panhandle, and it would wow. help curb that dust from blowing. You know, it would put up a vertical barrier to prevent all that topsoil from blowing away. And the topsoil would just get sort of, it would just hit the trees and stay there. Yeah, I mean, that what was What kind of trees were they, Carson? Sort of crudely simple, um, yeah. but it worked is the thing. And, you know, the, his plan got modified along the way. It didn't end up being a singular belt up and down the plains mm. after the Forest Service, you know, sort of broke down his plans into, into sort of simpler terms. They decided it was much more practical to do it over a 100-mile belt up and down the plains and do it in strips, what's uh-huh. called forest protection strips. Um, and so, you know, you would drive through the Great Plains and you would see these very straight rows of trees basically along the fence line on the fields, mm-hmm. um, and then it would break for a road or whatever, but strips all the way up and down the Great Plains. Amazing. And I, I confess to my ignorance here, which, what, how many states were affected by the Dust Bowl? I mean, I always think of Kansas as kind of being the main um, victim. But so Kansas, right. Nebraska, but you're saying Montana, the Dakotas also? 
pretty much all of the Great Plains were affected to a certain degree. A lot of people like yourself think of Kansas, a lot of people because of the Okies and the migration yeah. westward, they think of Oklahoma. Um, but, you know, I quote some farmers in my piece from the 30s in Nebraska that were dealing with the same effects. It, go, it, it really did go all the way up and down the Great Plains. So all those states were touched to some degree, just yeah. some more than others. Boy, that is just, you know, we, how quickly we forget. Let's just say that. Yeah. Um, so how many ultimately kind of like, how did it, this was part of the Works Progress Administration and the... CCC is that yeah, how he yeah, funded the all of this? And the CCC sort of combined. And were they public lands that they were planting the trees on, or were these in, on farmers' lands on like no, quarter that's section? One of the really interesting things about it is it's sort of this grand example of a public-private partnership. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest I can think of in our American history. I mean, it was all on private, like farmers' oh, lands really? for the most part. Ah. Um, but they agreed to go in on this, you know, sort of joint program in which government workers. They ultimately, I think, employed 4,000 workers through the CCC to help plant these trees. Wow. Um, but so you'd have these government workers working on private land with, you know, the support of the farmer, which is pretty miraculous. I can't think of something like that happening today in the same way. Well, that's a good, I mean, that leads me to ask you, like, when you wrote this article, you wrote it because, um, obviously, uh, first of all, people are cutting those trees down, those now mm-hmm. very mature trees, right? And Definitely. what what kind of impact is that is that having? I mean, what's you know what what was your impetus for writing the article? I mean, you saw these beautiful old trees being taken down. Did it immediately think? Did you think to yourself, "Oh my God, you know, we're going to have yeah. a dust bowl revisit here"? <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's not like they started tearing them down overnight. I mean, mm. I am almost thirty, and I've seen them being torn <gasps> down my entire childhood, and you know, they're still being torn down today. Mm. So it's been like a slow progression of watching these trees in the areas I grew up being torn down uh, yeah. my whole life. But sort of the impetus for writing this story now is is climate change. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, climate change isn't exactly a new idea either, but we're hitting this point when it's, we just can't ignore it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and all the forecasts for the Great Plains in terms of climate change are showing more extreme weather events. And kind of in this weird oxymoronic way, they're saying we're going to get more extreme precipitation, so flooding, but on the other hand, we're going to get more extreme drought. Um, And the problem with climate change is that if we get these extreme periods of drought, you know, more than just like two or three years, we're talking like five years or 10 years of drought, those trees are going to be sort of all we have left blocking that wind again. You know, in the meantime, since the PSFP program went into effect. We've developed all these new technologies that are wonderful. We, you know, now we have center pivot irrigation and all this machinery that do these great things. And we've incorporated these new practices like no-till farming and cover crops. And all of those things on their own are great, but we're starting to rely really heavily on them and tearing out those trees at the same time. Yeah. And so, you know, seems very short-sighted. Well, yeah, it feels short-sighted. It feels like we're sort of, you know, repeating history, which wasn't that long ago. <laughs> um, but, you know, you no-till and cover crops only work for so many years. But if you have a drought that lasts longer than that, your no-till and your cover crops are drying up and you don't have anything to plant in, and then you're back into that dust bowl scenario. Yeah, because those native grasses are long gone, because their root That's systems right. are way deeper than any of the crops that we grow. 
That's right. I think that is I think that is the key to the success of the prairies for all those many hundreds of years before we arrived was mm-hmm. the fact that their root systems went down so deeply. Yeah, that's right. And you know, like my story focuses on shelter belts, which is one aspect of it, but there's also should be a huge push for restoring native grassland. Mhm. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you a bit about sort of what the biggest changes in agriculture are, which we've just been talking about, the no-till and Mm -hmm. stuff. But I don't feel like those actually, they're not as wide. So so for instance, I did a little research and there's about 350 million acres of land that is under some sort of cultivation in this country. But only about 80 million are using those newer methods. Most of them are still relying just really heavily on irrigation. So... how do we how do we incentivize uh, landowners to um, go further than just doing no till and you know like how do we get them to basically yeah. plant more yeah, trees I mean, and stop cut, cutting them down? Right. I mean, it's such an important question, and from what I can tell, there's not great answers yet. Like, unless mm-hmm. there's sort of a concrete financial incentive in front of a farmer, I yeah. don't see any quick changes happening. Right. which is sad. And, you know, I've said in other interviews regarding this story, I don't want to generalize. There are farmers out there who are planting these shelter belts or maintaining their old ones or replanting or whatever. There, those farmers do exist. It's just that, in general, we see sort of a waning conservation ethic. And one of the studies yeah. I actually pointed out in my story for the Weather Channel was in regard to shelter belts specifically. They did a study at UNL, as I think a thesis project, um, but a student compared producer attitudes in eastern Nebraska towards shelter belts in 1982 with producer attitudes uh, towards shelter belts in 2009. And the number of farmers that saw definite benefits in windbreaks uh-huh. uh, sort of halved. So, you wow. know, in 82, I think it was maybe 30%. And then by 2000, or uh, yeah, 2009, yeah. it dropped down to 15. So we just, we see people relying so heavily on things like irrigation. And forgetting that we had other practices put in place for a reason. Right. They kind of forget that this irrigation isn't going to last forever, that these new technologies are great until you begin to overuse them or over-rely. We just, I think we're sort of getting a bit ahead of ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's take a short break uh, for a sponsor drop, and we'll be right back with Carson Vaughn talking about shelter belts in agricultural land and why we cannot ignore uh, their value. So um, stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Thank you. 
This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. You know, I don't think I even introduced the show at the top, but here it is now. This is food. <clears throat> Sorry, this is <laughs> What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm Katie Kiefer, and I'm talking on the phone with Carson Vaughn, uh, a writer for many publications, but in this instance, specifically for Fern <clears throat> and the Weather Channel um, about the shelter belts that have protected much of American uh, prairie since uh, the Dust Bowl in the 1930s. So um, to go back to like the practices, uh, I think it's really interesting that that um, this is not something that is going right into the heart of, you know, the big agricultural schools like University of Nebraska, mm-hmm. for instance. Like what did you did your research uncover any reasons why? These kinds of you know these old-fashioned conservation measures like build uh, like planting trees um, has not become sort of part of the national conversation on how we manage our resources. What do you think yeah. about that? I mean, I didn't dive into that too much, but you know, I don't think it's necessarily so much that the universities aren't covering them. It's not like if you're going to school to become a farmer that you're not learning about shelter belts along the way. I think it's just mm-hmm. a much different world when you're out there actually putting things into practice. You know, and something you hear a lot from kind of agroforestry officials is that it really depends on, you know, who is your natural resource district official on the ground or who is your local, like, NRCS guy. And if that man or that woman is more familiar with, you know, how to grow row crops, that's going to be their first choice. When they're giving you advice, they're going to be giving you advice on how to grow row crops. If they're not that familiar with shelter belts or the shelter belt program, that's probably not going to be the first thing they bring up when meeting with a farmer. And so it really can depend on just that individual you have in the county giving advice to farmers. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Well, what do you think the math would be for something like this? If I mean, because one of the arguments that you cite in your piece is, you know, basically that agriculture has begun, you know, planting hedge, you know, fence line to fence line or. Yeah. Yeah. So in other words, they're like, they don't want to give up the extra acreage um, because that can actually make the difference between a profit and a loss for any given year of farming. So they get rid of the trees so that they can plant fence row to fence row. And what would it, did you get a sense of what it would cost for one thing, like to have cut down all your trees so that you can extend your acreage or what it would cost for them to actually implement a shelter belt program? Like, is there any, you know, as you said before the break, where's the financial incentivization for something like that? Right. Well, and that's, You know, you talk to a lot of agroforestry officials, and they'll be the first to admit that, you know, when the shelter belt program was first put in place, they were advocating for shelter belts that were like 10 rows wide, which is pretty extreme. That's a that's a lot of trees. And the the officials today will say you don't need 10 rows of trees. In fact, that's not even economically feasible for you as a farmer to keep 10 rows of trees in your land. Like they admit that does not make sense. They advocate for you know two rows, maybe three rows, yeah. um, but they say much more than that. You're not going to make a return on that. Uh-huh. The other, you know, it, it gets nuanced, too, because a lot of farmers will look at their crops right up next to a shelter belt and say, like, this is not doing me any good. My my corn here next to these trees is not growing like the rest mm-hmm. of my field. And so they'll use that as justification to rip out those trees. What they don't know is that the studies all show that you're getting improved yield, not right up next to that shelter belt, but 50 yards or 100 yards out. They think that the corn right up next to the trees is 
not you know it's it's much different. They're much poorer yields <coughs> than you're getting in the middle in the middle of that field, mm-hmm. and so they advocate instead you know planting like a hay crop right next to there, getting something out of it. But I see. just looking at what's being planted right up next to the shelter belt is not going to do a whole lot for you. Yeah, even though isn't it, your your article also mentions that the shelter belts are are home to a lot of different uh, wildlife species. You know, it creates a natural habitat, which right. does improve the yield for farmers. Um, but somehow that, that equation is not being made, um, obvious, it would yeah. seem. Yeah, well, I mean, and overall, like, to the economic point, I think the thing is that trees in general are just, shelter belts are more abstract than your row crops are. You know, like, how do you value a windbreak? Is it just how much it costs for that tree to be put in the ground, or is yeah. it how much a tree costs that's that mature or that old, and how much wind that tree is actually blocking, or... How to you know equate the how do you how do you add in the improved crop yield into that fact that there's just so many more calculations yeah. to make to try to throw into valuing a shelter belt than there are valuing you know 350 bushel corn like that's a right. much simpler calculation I think that's honestly what it comes down to at the end of the day is farmers look at it and they see well one if I want any help planting these trees I'm going to have to go through CRP or NRDs, and that's going to be a time-consuming thing. I'm going to have to break down all these calculations. And then the other half of that is, well, if I just take these out, plant a few more acres, I know what the bottom line of those acres are going to be. Yeah, right. Except for it's hard to calculate the bottom line going forward when uh, you need to use more water, for example. And so that brings us to the water question and climate change. Let's talk a little bit about, I mean, the Ogallala Aquifer is the primary water source for most of the Plains states. Am I correct mm-hmm. in that? Yeah. Yep, that's right. And there's been a lot of coverage about how fast the levels of that aquifer have gone down and um, and what they, you know, how how slowly it recharges. So yeah. when farmers consider these uh, sort of long-term issues, it just, I, I don't understand why there isn't more of a calculation about like, whoa, I'm really going to need to, you know, step up my irrigation if mm-hmm. we have, you know, 10 years of drought starting next, yeah. you know, like, I, you know, I, 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 not that I expect anyone to be, you know, a genius at that, but just, it seems a little crazily short-sighted. I don't understand why these shelter belts are being removed when they have clearly done a good job of preserving topsoil um, and adding species. I should say, Katie, before I forget, the one thing that is important to keep in mind here is that for a lot of these trees, I mean, a lot of them were planted with cottonwoods originally, and those at this point in time are reaching the end of their natural life cycle. So a lot of those are dying. The concern there, though, is that we don't see farmers replanting those shelter belts that are dying. Um, but I do want it to be known that some of them are dying off. Sure, naturally. that would make sense. I mean, we're talking about 100 years, right? 100 plus right. years. I mean, right. trees do have a but finite I'm, life. Yeah, that's right. But mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't disagree with you. I do I do feel like a lot of this feels short-sighted and, you know, myopic a little bit. And you're right. I mean, you probably saw the study that came out two or three weeks ago now that showed that the uh, Ogallala Aquifer was depleting, I think, twice as fast over the last six years as it had in the previous 60 years. Jesus, no, I didn't see that, that, but wow. concerning that to me. (laughs) That would be very concerning if I lived in uh, one of those plain states. Like, very concerning. Absolutely, and we're drawing it down so quick, and as you know, like, these aquifers do not recharge nearly as quickly as we can deplete them. And so 
Yeah, if I was a farmer, I would certainly be concerned about that. I think a lot of it just comes down to sort of the, you know, the weird psychiatry we get around here. You know, it's, I think part of it is, you know, an individual farmer thinking, well, if I don't use these resources now, my neighbor across the street is going to be using them, so why should I be losing out? Really? You know, on that end. I think there's sort of a competition sense to it. I think there's, you know, the idea that at some point there's there's always sort of a strange fear of government, right, that at some point the government yes. is going to come in and take away these resources so they need to utilize them. There's, I mean, I don't want to pin it on one thing, but I think there's always sort of a justification to say, well, we'll worry about that when it happens. Yeah. Though, you know, I would be the first to argue that it's happening right now. Well, gosh, <laughs> yes. I mean, I think that, you know, California was a really good example. Texas has been a very I good mean, example of, yeah. of the implications of long-term drought and how that right. affects, That's right. you know. I, I, you know, to me, there should be a sense of tremendous urgency around these issues that I'm not feeling. And I guess part of it is what you just described, sort of the f- sense of like, well, I'm going to take what I can get because I, you know, I need to keep doing my thing. And then also the fact that people distrust government, even mm-hmm. though in instances like this, I personally think government should be regulating the hell out of how people use water in those yeah, water challenge I, states. And we have no yeah. coherent water policy in this country, as far yeah, as I can yeah, tell. Yeah, I mean, I would also advocate for more regulation in this sense. I think we're going to need it at some point. I don't yeah. think that, you know, I don't think the ag economy has proven itself to be able to, you know, regulate itself mm-hmm. in that way. Um, and, you know, in addition to the sort of distrust of government, though, we also are still heading right into that wall of distrusting the science behind climate change out here. You know, like, again, I don't want to generalize. A lot of farmers do believe in it, but a lot more farmers I talk to uh, either don't believe in it or aren't willing to call it climate change at this point. So I think for some people, there's still the hope that maybe this is just cyclical and we're going to work ourselves out of it and then, you know, things will return to whatever their old ideal was. Even but, though I mean, we are we, having we, the hottest, you know, temperatures we've ever had since they started measuring temperatures. Yeah, I mean, I mean it's, <clears throat> it's me. hard. It really is hard to rationalize or give any sort of justification behind. But yeah. I can tell you, talking to farmers out here, most of the time you do not hear them saying, well, you know, I need these trees not only to help my crop yields, but because they're sequestering carbon, you know, sequestering carbon. You don't right. hear any sort of climate change arguments when they're talking about how to run their farm. Huh. So it's really about whether or not it's they're hip to the idea that they are um, preserving topsoil um, or so it's really it's a question of whether they're going to preserve enough topsoil to make it valuable or whether they're going to be in the way of growing fence row to fence row, which is what people want to do. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, there's also just way fewer small family farms than yeah. used to be. You know, it's a very corporate field now. And those few family farms that do remain, you know, very understandably, they're looking at the bottom dollar all the time and saying, yeah. like, how do I profit this year? How do I pay back my loan? How do I, you know, right. I talked to one farmer here who's sort of explaining a friend of his who, you know, got a 30-year loan to take out basically a million dollars to buy a quarter section of ground. Uh-huh. You know, making any profit off that, without planting literally everything you have is difficult, you know? And again, there's arguments to be made and showing him that there's improved crop yields and blah, blah, blah. But 
that's sort of getting into the weeds for most people. They're not thinking that far ahead. So you can understand right. why at least the gut impulse is to say, I've got to plant everything. Yeah, sure. I totally understand it. I mean, farming is really hard business to make a profit in. So yeah, yeah every yeah. quarter, you know, every literally every inch of ground makes a difference to you. But, yeah. you know, what do you think going forward? Um, you know, we should start thinking about what strategies, what, what, how, what do you think are the best kinds of strategies to help, um, you know, landowners in general recognize the value of shelter belt uh, type initiatives? Or, you know, other water conservation or topsoil conserving um, practices. Yeah. I mean, I think we just need more. I I think a big part of it is education. We need Mm -hmm. as much education as we can get. And I don't necessarily mean just at, like, university level or even, like, the high school or elementary levels. Like, we need continued education for farmers already out there in the field doing work and you know, that needs to be a continual thing. I think we need more officials on the ground, more resources saying, here's the benefits of a shelter belt. So I think education is just a big one. And then again, like you're never going to be able to find a better argument than finding a better financial incentive for these farmers to plant these trees. Right. Um, Right now, you know, cost share programs exist, like I said, through like Nebraska's natural resource districts or through nationally through the uh, CRP program. Uh-huh. Those exist, but cost share assistance is not the same as profiting off the land the same way you do with your row crops. So until that equation balances out a little more to the point where trees look as valuable as the corn that you're planting, right. I just don't see that, that changing very quickly. Because I would have thought, like, the trees would have a value for timber. Like, once they become more, you know, r- once they grow up to full height, you could probably thin out your trees and make money off of your timber. Um, yeah. If it's the kind of wood that's that goes into construction or something like that. I mean, I wonder if there's, like, a specific type of tree that maybe would be better um, that, you know, somebody would you know, that the USDA could incorporate into the farm bill somehow that that's part of right. your, part of your package right. when you can, right. when you get crop insurance, part of your crop insurance package. And this is insurance against the future is to plant trees. I mean, even yeah. if it's only 50, you know? Right. I mean, I think those are certainly good ideas and I hope something like that happens in the future, but right now those are just so, I mean, that's an abstract idea right now out here in the plains, you know, because that's not happening already. <laughs> It's not something that they're they're calculating, you know. And huh. in terms of like a natural wood supply, you know, like back in the day, <laughs> at the Homestead Act or the Timber Culture Act or the Cater huh. Act, like people were planting trees and then they were cutting them down for their own wood yeah. supply on the farm or on the ranch. Like that was a very practical thing at the time. But you know, most farmers and ranchers in the plains today are not getting their lumber from the Great Plains. You know, that's all shipped yeah. in. It's just you know a new new world economy we're living in, and so. Um, you know, I don't know. I think it would be great if we could return and get, you know, find a way for farmers to financially benefit from having that natural timber supply on their land, but it's just not there right now. Yeah. The other thing, we're going to wrap it up in a couple minutes, but one thing I wanted to um, chat with you about, we were talking earlier, uh, you mentioned the fact that there are f- relatively few family farms or that farms, mm-hmm. if there are family farms, then they are farms that have consolidated w- other farms and are now farming, you know, really pretty, pretty big tracts of land. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing that is the other entity that is buying um, types of uh, farmland like that are, as I discovered uh, writing an article myself about uh, institutional investment in agricultural land. 
Mm-hmm. And that is not a population where I see <laughs> long-term stewardship being an especially compelling argument. Yeah, uh, I mean, you. yeah, that's right. You nailed it, Katie. I mean, <laughs> when you have an absentee landowner situation, they're not on the ground every day seeing the ecological benefits of a shelter belt right. from you know, a thousand miles away, they're looking at dead weight when they see those trees. That's, yeah. You know, that's all they see. So they don't have much of a gut reaction, you know, to keep, to keep them around. Yeah. Um, and another thing with the, you know, corporatization of these farms is that, you know, we used to have shelter belts planted around every farmstead, you know, like the homestead. Yeah. So around each home, you'd have trees as well, in addition to your field windbreaks. But when you consolidate farms, I mean, that's when you see these old abandoned farm homes out in the plains, right? And they tear those trees down as quickly as they plow down that old abandoned farmstead. And because of that, you're seeing, again, much fewer shelter belts than you used to. Yeah. Well, what do you think is, what's, what's, what are you going to, you know, how do you feel like your article is going to have an effect? If, I mean, do you think your article will have an effect? You know, will, will the right people be reading this? <laughs> we hope <laughs> I, so, right? I mean, how do we make it? a reporter in the Great Plains. Yeah, I mean. about the environment that I struggle with all the time, Katie. I mean, all I can say is I hope so. One of the things I really did appreciate about working on a story for the Weather Channel, which was not previously on my radar as a right. place that I would write for, is that I feel like the audience that the Weather Channel gets is pretty democratic. You know, I think people from yeah. both sides of the aisle, people with all sorts of different philosophies on climate change, are reading the Weather Channel because they want to know how cold it's going to be today. <laughs> and sure. so I'm hoping that, you know, some people accidentally stumbled onto this article who maybe were farmers who deal with this kind of thing. And, yeah. you know, that's that's best case scenario, though, I realize. Well, I, I mean, I think that's a powerful argument. I mean, I think that the Weather Channel is indeed, as you say. I mean, and who's who needs to know more about the weather than a farmer? Exactly so right, and yeah. so, even if you don't buy into the idea that you know there is climate change galloping away from us, <laughs> yeah. um, you still can't deny the fact that a five-year drought has a major impact on you, and you know how much water you can draw and how much yeah. soil is going to be blowing around if you don't get That's your stuff exactly together. Right. So well, I should also say that after the story came out, one thing I did hear from a lot of people were whether they were farmers or not, I heard mostly from people in the Great Plains, as you can imagine, but you yeah. know, people from North Dakota to Texas would like comment on the story or tweet at me and say, like, I see the same thing happening here in my Ooh. neck of the woods. And yeah. it's really sad for me, not only because, you know, I begrudge all these ecological, you know, things that are happening because of their removal, but also, you know, I grew up around all these trees, like all my, mm. you know, I had a person tweeted me yesterday and say that all their like best memories from childhood in rural America came from roaming around shelter belts as a kid. And I believe you know, I can I can relate to that. The only trees I saw growing up in central Nebraska were shelter belts, you know? So yeah. I think there's another argument to make in terms of just like their aesthetic impact on the plains and, and what humans get out of them. Mm-hmm. Well we all know that it's it's a good idea to hug a tree every single day. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I always say. I, I actually do hug a tree almost every single day. I love it. I love trees. If I could have nothing <laughs> but trees, that would be my, you know, like I would love to plant an arboretum. Like that would be yeah. my, that would totally be my joy. Anyway, yeah, Carson, I, I want to um, give people a chance to like learn more about your work. So if you have a website, promote yourself shamelessly now. That's This is the portion sure, of the program sure. where well, you get to. I uh, begrudgingly admit that my website is currently under construction. So. Okay. Uh, maybe in six months, check out CarsonVaughn.com. But uh-huh. in the meantime, you should follow me on Twitter at, at 
Carson Vaughn. Okay, I'm going to do that myself. I don't think I've okay. connected with you on Twitter. And we'll tweet yeah. out this program. That would be great. Thank yeah, you so much, you Katie. Too. It was really fun to be on here. Thank you so much. I hope, I'm hope i glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> I certainly did. I did. I, did. I, I like a little <laughs> history lesson every once in a while. I think it's a good thing for people to remember what, what was and what can be again. Um, and hopefully right. not repeating uh, the mistakes of history, but rather learning from. So that's what your yeah, article is all about. So I, I appreciate you writing it. And thank you to my incredible sponsor, the Hearst Ranch, and the dulcet tones of one Brian Kenny, who <laughs> drops that um, beautiful uh, baritone of his into those sponsor drops. And, um, and we love him, and we love the Hearst Ranch. So thanks, thank you for the sponsorship, and thanks for listening, folks. We'll be back next week with another really cool program. We'll be talking about meatless meat. Stay tuned for that. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Hey.